Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 22 to the end of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 22. And there we read, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be in your house and with your people. But Lord, it's even better to be with you and hearing your word. And so as we are together praising you and worshiping you in songs and prayers, uh, now, Lord, will you speak to us through your word. And uh, Lord, we need the spirit of God to enable me and empower me. We need the spirit of God to open up our ears and, Lord, prepare our hearts to hear it and to receive it. Uh, Lord, not just to receive it, but to believe it, and not just to believe it, but, oh God, to, to live it. And so would you be pleased to work on us, making us more like that glorious image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Peter is writing his first epistle uh, to primarily uh, Gentile Christians who are being heavily persecuted for their faith. Uh, and what facilitated this persecution is really the Emperor Nero. The Emperor Nero. You see, in his thirst for building, he burned down a lot of Rome so that he could rebuild it his own way. And in the process, many people in Rome lost loved ones and homes and possessions and all that other kind of stuff. And the word around town was that Nero burned it down. So Nero needed to protect himself, so he came up with a scapegoat, and the scapegoat was that Christians did it. And he started a campaign of brutal persecution against, against Christians in Rome, and it spread throughout the whole empire. So these Gentile Christians are struggling, wondering why is this happening to them? How could God allow them to go through such trials? And Peter answers their questions by reminding them of all that God has given to them uh, and, and, and has done for them and what they are now and the great salvation that they have in Christ. And so for the first 12 verses of chapter 1, he gives them indicatives, which are objective truths or facts, like they were elected by the Father. They were brought to life by the Holy Spirit. They were cleansed for obedience by the shedding of Jesus' blood. They've been, been born again, we're told, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. They've been given an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, reserved for them in heaven, and that it's the power of God right now keeping them in this life till they receive that inheritance. And so for 12 verses, it's indicatives, declaring what God has done for them, what they have already in Christ. But in verse 13 and following, uh, the imperatives come, well, those are the commands. And there are four commands. So in light of what God has done for you, Peter says, uh, this is what you are commanded to do. And the first three commands have to do with man's response to God. First is, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. Verse 13. Second one, be holy as I am holy. Verse 16. And then the third one, conduct yourself in godly fear. Verse 16. And the fourth one, which we'll consider today, is in verse 22, and that is, love one another. Love one, an one another. Uh, and this command is how the saints respond to the saints. 
And I'd like to consider it today using a three-point outline, which is pretty simple, the command to love, the way to love, and thirdly, the ability to love. The command, the way, the ability. So let's look at the command to love in verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Well, the command is to love one another. And this is nothing new because the New Testament tells us over and over again to love one another. Jesus said to his disciples, which of course Peter was one of, in John 13, 34, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. So we're to love each other the way Christ has loved us. And then in verse 35, he tells us what the result of that love will be. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we're to love one another so that the watching world knows that we're Jesus' disciples. Because only Jesus' disciples can love this way. The world doesn't know what real love is. To them, it's a feeling. To them, it's an emotion. Something that comes, something that goes. So today, you can fall madly in love, and tomorrow, you're out of love. That's the world's kind of love. So when they see Christians truly love each other, it's something out of the ordinary. And they know that they don't have that kind of love. And the only reasons Christians have it is because Christ has has loved them and given them the supernatural ability, if you will, to love like he loved. He said in John 15, 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. So he loves us the way the Father loves him. And then four verses later, he says, greater love has no one than this, than, than to lay down one's life for his friends. So Jesus has loved us by laying down his life for us. And Paul told husbands this in Ephesians 5.25 where he uses the analogy of marriage and, and, and the gospel. He says, he says to husbands, love your wives, here's how, how we do it, guys, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So he loved the church, he loved his people so much, he gave himself for her, he died for her. Then in verses 26 and 27, Paul says why, why he died for the church. He says that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now when Peter says to love one another, the word he uses is agapeo. Uh, and, and in the Greek, this is the highest form of love. It means an unconditional love, a sacrificial love. Right? It's, it's loving someone because you choose to love them. You choose to love them. You choose to, to cherish them. Not because they're lovable, right? Not because they deserve to be loved, but you choose to love them. This is the love the Father has for the Son and the Son has for us. And, and some may have a problem here that God is commanding and he is commanding love, but, but this, this love, I said, isn't a feeling. Rather, it's an act of the will. It is an act of the will, so, so we can indeed follow it. Now, the reason he commands us to love one another is because sometimes we're selfish. And sometimes the old ways kick in or the old man kicks up its ugly head. Uh, And we need to be reminded to love the brethren because we're different. We're very different. Uh, And we're not always easy to love if we're honest with ourselves. And it's not always automatic. And and it should be natural, but it's not always natural. So we need the reminder. So loving one another is, is not a suggestion. It's a command, and a command, as all commands in Scripture, to be obeyed immediately. And when we do, there really may be no greater evidence of the new life that is in us. 
John said in 1 John 3.14, he says, we know, what do we know? We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, John said, let us love one another for God is love and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So one way you can be sure, you can have assurance that you're born again, you love the brethren. You genuinely love the brethren. And listen, when God regenerates you, you are instantly born into his family. Instantly born into his family. And you are immediately brothers and sisters with every other Christian that you know. And people in God's family love each other because God doesn't have a dysfunctional family. We may be all out of whack, but God does not have a dysfunctional family. Everyone in his family loves the Father, and they must also love each other because the very nature of God is in us. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that we are partakers of the divine nature. And what is God's nature? God is love, right? 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in 1 John 4, 12, it says, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So we have assurance that we're his children when we love his children. And the world knows we're Christ's disciples when we love each other. So we can't claim God is in us if we don't love those whom God is in. But when we do, it's an indicator to a, to a lost world that Christ is in us, that he's changed our hearts. And, we, and they're getting a glimpse of him in us. Truthfully, if you think about this, most of us, most of us would not only have not loved each other before we were saved, but we probably wouldn't even have liked each other. Think about that. Look at the people around here. We're such an eclectic group. We come from all kinds of backgrounds and, and situations in life. We really are kind of a mixed bag of people. Uh, and, and truthfully, apart from Christ, we would, some of us would have nothing in common. Nothing in common. But now in Christ, we have, we have the most important thing in common. And we genuinely love each other. And our hearts have been knit together in the gospel. And we would do anything for each other because we love our Father and we love Christ who has given us a love for each other. And this should be true of all the saints. And brothers and sisters, it is more important that we demonstrate love for one another than we demonstrate love for the lost. And of course we should love the lost. Oh, he said we shouldn't love the lost. No, I didn't say that. I said it's more important that we demonstrate love for each other than love for the lost because when we love each other, it draws the lost to us and then to Christ. Amen? And so we see the command to love. Secondly, the way to love. Verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Well, we're commanded to love one another, but how do we do that? How do we do that? And Peter gives us three ways in verse 22. We're to love each other sincerely, we're to love each other fervently, and we're to love each other with a pure heart. Uh, so, 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 we can, so we can say we love someone, but we're really not loving them if we don't love them sincerely, fervently, and with a pure heart. So in the first place, we're to love each other sincerely. We're to love the brethren sincerely. And the word sincere means without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. Paul said in Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. And in the first century, uh, a, a hypocrite was an actor who put on a mask to, to, to play a pretend part. So we don't pretend to love each other. We're not playing a part. We don't love to keep up appearances, right? 
We don't smile and act nice around a brother or a sister, but when they leave, you know, we talk about them or gossip about them or think something ill about them. We don't say one thing to their face and then think something else in our minds, right? We don't do that. So, So to love sincerely means to love without any ulterior motives. So you don't love someone because they could do something for you, like give you a job or maybe financially help you out or get you free jet tickets or giant tickets, not that you'd want those, right? They don't do something for you. Uh, And when you love someone sincerely, you don't envy them. You don't wish you had what they had. You're not jealous that they've got something you don't have. And you don't say uh, uh, that you love them, but then you don't trust them, or you don't want them in your house. And you don't say, call me anytime, I'll be there for you, and then then secretly you say to yourself, I hope they never call. You don't do that. Love doesn't do that. And you don't say, I'll pray for you, when truly you have no intention of praying for them. So you don't make promises you will not keep. And, and if you sincerely love someone, you don't, you don't tell them what they want to hear, you tell them the truth. You tell them the truth, even if the truth hurts. Proverbs 27, six says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's faithful. David said in Psalm 141, verse five, let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. So then sincere love does not flatter, but rather it's kind, it's patient, it's honest, and it speaks the truth in love. Uh, And sincere love is a real love, a genuine love, and it is produced by the Holy Spirit. And remember, the crown jewel of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Every other part of that fruit sits on love. If there's no love, there's no peace, joy, kindness, patience, gentleness, Uh, uh, or self-control, love. Therefore, sincere love is not false or fake or superficial, kind of like the world's love, if you know what I mean. Many years ago, and this is not really a good illustration, I can't remember the name of the commercial, there was a beer commercial, maybe like 15, 20 years ago, and it was, you know, 30-year-old guys sitting in boats or or sitting around the ball field saying to another 30-year-old guy, I love you, man. The other guy says, "Yeah, yeah, I love you too. Right? Not sincere, right? But sincere love comes from the inside of a person and it shows itself in outward actions. And we see this, of course, where else but first and foremost at the cross. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love. How do we know love? Because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So then are we to literally die for the saints? Well, I would say, yeah, if need be if need be, but verse 17 explains what laying down our lives means. He says, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? How? Well, it doesn't. So out of love, Christ gave everything for our greatest need, right? We needed a savior. We needed a redeemer. We needed somebody to reconcile us to God, to take away the enmity between us, to bring peace between God and man. And he did it out of love. Therefore, out of love, we ought to meet the needs of the saints if we're able to. And James puts it this way in James 2, 15 and 16. He said, if a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, What does it profit? What does it profit? Or, how is that loving your brother or sister? How is that loving your brother or sister? 
So sincere love meets the needs of the struggling saints. You know, it's easy, it's easy to say, I love you and I'll pray for you and I'll see you next Sunday. But sincere love acts. It's a verb. It's an action. Sincere love meets needs. And I can give you testimony after testimony of how the saints have loved the saints in this way. And I can even give you testimony after testimony of how the saints have loved me this way. Because Romans 5.5 says that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The love of God has been poured out. And, and, and when it's been poured out in us, where's it gonna go? It's gonna, it's gonna come here and go out again, right? So the love of God in us comes out of us in sincerity. Secondly, Peter says it comes out of us fervently, fervently. Verse 22 says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Uh, and this kind of ups the ante. It ups the ante because fervently means with intensity, with intensity. We see the word used in Luke twenty-two forty-four when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and as we read, sweating as it were, great drops of blood, we read this, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly or fervently, that's the word. So the idea is not relaxing in effort, not relaxing in effort. Uh, to love someone intensely or fervently means you are actively seeking to love them. Right, this, is, this is to have a deep concern for the saints and a love that says, I'm gonna go out of my way for you. I'm gonna go out of my way for you. I'm gonna go the extra mile for you because I love you. Because of the love I have for you, I'm going the extra mile. Now, now the word fervently in Greek literally means to stretch, like stretching a muscle to its limit. And I noticed on Facebook that you guys had your turkey bowl. I guess we had one guy go, Dylan, uh, playing football on Thursday. And, and I know, well, you guys look a little on the younger side, but the first crowd here had a couple of the older guys, and I know they were out there. And you gotta stretch your muscles. Because if you don't stretch them, you're gonna pop something or strain something, and some of the older guys, you know what I'm talking about. It goes quick, right? And so it's stretching. It's like stretching a violin string to its limit to get the highest sound out of it. And what Peter is saying is this, love to the limit. Love to the limit. Stretch it out. Stretch it out. Whatever it costs you in time or energy or money or weariness, love the brethren to the limit. You see, God wants us to extend ourselves to each other. I remember back in 1993 when I first started going to North Shore, and I don't think there's anybody in here who was back there then. Uh, it was one of the elders. His name was Charlie Volz. Uh, and Charlie Volz really loved the saints fervently. He loved them fervently. He he. He was always there for them. He gave them rides. He helped them move. He discipled them. He watched their cats. He had all-night counseling sessions. Right? He would slip an envelope to a saint in need. He ministered to, to single kids, uh, from single mom's kids and so on. And he told me once that his wife, a very godly woman, we used to get a little upset because she thought people took advantage of Charlie because whenever they needed something or wanted something or had a problem, they would call him and he would always help. And I said to Charlie, I said, well, what would you say to that? He said, I didn't say anything. He said, I delight to love the saints. He said, it's my joy to bless the saints. So the question is, do you love one another fervently? Do you love one another fervently? Or do you love them when it's convenient? Do you love them when it works out in your schedule? Right? Do you love them to the limit? 
fervently. Do you love the saints to the max? Is your love for them stretching you to the limit? That's what the Lord wants. That's what he expects. That's how he's loved us, right? Now, here are some ways, and just a few, and I'm sure if you asked your elders or you just look around, you'll find like 10,000 more, but here's a few for you, a few ways that we could do that. Well, you could do that, because I'm not here, all right? Some ways you could do it. You, you can tutor some saint's kid who's struggling in school with a topic that you happen to be good in, right? You could be there for a saint who's struggling in their marriage. You can encourage someone who's weary. Help the single mom fix her car or mentor her kids. Give aid to the elderly. Call the lonely. Make a meal for the hurting. Pick up medicine for the sick. Give rides here, there, and everywhere. Let them use your stuff. Share the gospel with their unsaved loved ones, and so on. There's a plethora of ways that we, we love the brethren. So you fervently love them. Here it is. When their burden becomes your burden. When their burden becomes your burden, then you, you fervently love them because you want to you be there, help them, counsel them, comfort them. So would I love the brethren sincerely, fervently, and lastly, would I love them with a pure heart. And, and pure heart means free from corruption or unmixed. So a pure heart does not have corrupt desires or motives. Uh, it's an unmixed love uh, that proceeds from, from the heart. This is a clean love, not a cold love or a formal love or a distant love. Uh, this is a love free from any selfish desire. Uh, it's a love that's blameless, unstained, and innocent. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, right? for they shall see God. Paul said in 1 Timothy uh, ch uh, chapter 1, verse 5, The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart. So our love for the brethren must be sincere, must be fervent, and it must be with a pure heart. And if that is the case... Uh, then our love will grow, and it will grow for the saints. Right? Paul prayed for the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 9 of uh, Philippians. He said, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more, more and more, in knowledge and all discernment. So the point is, we don't tap out on love. You can't say, oh, I've maxed out. I'm just loving to, I'm 100% I'm love. We never, we never hit it. We need to grow. He prayed for the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 that the, that the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. He thanked God that the Thessalonians were growing in their love in chapter 2. He said, we abound, 2 Thessalonians, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Why? Because your faith grows exceedingly and the love for every one of you abounds toward each other. Listen, you can be a theological giant and not love the saints. You can be a doctrinal debater on Facebook, and we have a few, and not love the saints. You can be a really gifted preacher and teacher and evangelist and not love the saints. You can be you know, a server extraordinaire in this church and not love the saints. Now, if we're to have this kind of love, if our love is to grow and become more intense for the saints, then our love for the Lord is gonna have to grow and become more intense for him. Really, our love for each other is really conditioned on our love for him. If we love him little, we're certainly going to be loving each other little. Right? And, and it's only, it's only going to happen and grow if we spend time with him and we gaze upon his beauty in the gospel and we allow more intake of the word of God into our life and less intake of the garbage that seems to surround us in this world. 
Right? And we need to become captivated all the more with the, his person and his work. When we understand how much he loved us, when he didn't have to love us, when there was nothing lovable about us, and he does it because he wants to. No one forced him to choose you or to love you. He desired to do that. It should make us love him all the more. And that ought to make us love each other all the more, right? So we see the command to love, the way to love, and thirdly, the ability to love. And that'll be in verses 22 to 25. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and its flowers fall away. But the word of God endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Now the reason God can command us to love in a supernatural way is because he's given us the ability to do that. And he's enabled us by bringing us to life or regenerating us, and then by giving us saving faith. So God is in us, and since God is love, we can now love in a selfless, sacrificial way. And Peter starts with, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. And purified means to cleanse, or to cleanse from the, the defilement. And there are two ways to look, to look at you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. The first way is in a sanctifying way, uh, meaning you are growing in your faith by obeying the truth or the commands of God. Right? You are morally cleansing yourself from sin in your life as you obey the truth as a believer. The second way to look at uh, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth is in a salvific way. Uh, that purifying your souls is to be understood to refer to your salvation. And I think this is the way Peter is using it here. So then your souls were purified, uh, you were purified and you were saved by faith when you believed the gospel. Not that you saved yourself, because the Bible is crystal clear, you can't save yourself, uh, and that you and I have absolutely no part in our salvation. It is all 100% a work of God. But because God has brought you to life, because he's regenerated you, and, and he's turned our hearts from stone to flesh, and then granted us the gifts of repentance and faith. When, when we heard the gospel, we believed the gospel to the saving of our souls. And, and we did believe it. No one forced us to believe it. God wasn't taking our arm and twisting it behind our back to believe it. Right? We wanted to believe it. And the reason we wanted to believe it is because God changed the wanter. He changed the heart. The heart was bad and God made the heart good. He brought it to life. He regenerated it. And then Peter adds, through the Spirit which not every translation has because some say it was a later, in, later edition. But the truth is, it's the Spirit of God which birthed us into the family of God and enables us to believe. Right? We can't do anything spiritual apart from the Holy Spirit. So, so we obey the truth, and then that begs the question, what is the truth? Right? We obey the truth, but what is the truth? And the truth is that God is creator, and he is lawgiver. And he is sovereign over his creation and he is holy and just and his law is holy and just. And the truth is that we are unholy and we are lawbreakers of his holy law. And the truth is that we sin against him and we deserve his judgment which is an eternal hell. And the truth is that because, Christ is, because God is rich in mercy, he has chosen to redeem some of fallen humanity. And the way he did that is at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ where he took on humanity, lived a sinless, flawless life, an obedient life. 
And he went to the cross to pay for all the sins of all his people the Father had given to him. And because Christ paid the price for our condemnation with his precious blood, we can be forgiven. That's the truth. That's the truth, and the truth is synonymous with the gospel. Paul says so in Ephesians 1.13. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So the word of truth is the gospel. So we believed the truth, and we were saved by it, and we were purified by it. But unbelievers hear the, hear the truth, but they don't obey it, and they don't believe it. It's foolishness to them. It's re- restricting to them. And quite honestly, it's unnecessary to them. So they may hear the truth, uh, but, but they've never been purified by it because they don't obey it. Paul said in Romans 2.8 that there are those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Everybody obeys something, right? Everybody's a slave either to, to sin, which is how we're born into this world, or if we're born again, we become sins of, uh, slaves of Christ. Right? And 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul said that judgment is coming on those who do not know God, there's one category of people, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And those who do not obey the gospel, those who have heard the gospel, but they don't, maybe they embrace the gospel for a season, a very short season, but then the word comes in conflict with their life and they reject the word. Or, as Jesus says, the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches, it crowd it out, choke it out. But if God opens a man's heart, he will hear it and he will receive it and he will believe it and he will obey it. And in order for that to happen, he first has to hear the truth. All right, so men need to hear the unadulterated gospel. Not just that God loves you and has a plan for your life, but that you're a sinner who desperately needs a savior. That you're under the wrath of God. If you died today, you'd, you'd be under the wrath of God forevermore. You need to hear the truth. And sadly, Sadly, so many churches and pastors and preachers are reluctant to preach and teach the full counsel of the word of God because words like sin and judgment and repentance and wrath and hell, well, they're not nice words, quite honestly. People don't like them. But we're not here to entertain people or get us to like us, get them to like us. We're here to tell them the truth to the saving of their souls or to the edifying of their souls, one or the other. Well, the second reason why we have the ability to love the brethren sincerely and fervently with a pure heart is because verse 23 says, we've been born again. We've been born again. And Peter spoke of being born again in verse three of chapter one where he said, by God's mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope and begotten means to be born, to be born. Jesus said to Nicodemus, very succinctly in in John 3, 3, most assuredly, take it to the bank, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I don't care what anyone believes, and I say this on the street often to people I meet when we go out evangelizing. They say, I'm a believer. I say, are you born again? Well, I don't know. I'm trying to be, maybe. Sort of hope so, maybe one day. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You so desperately need that. The great evangelist, and maybe the massive, the number one catalyst for the, the first great awakening was, was George Whitfield. And, and one man came up to him one day and said to him, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep preaching you gotta be born again? Here was his answer because you must be born again. You must be. And to be born again is a supernatural work of God where he takes you from spiritual death and brings you to spiritual life. That's what he does. 
where he births you into his family from, and from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And just like your physical birth, which you had absolutely no participation in at all, so too your spiritual birth. John said in John 1.13 that we're not born again of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. It's a work of God. And by the way, since God has birthed you into his family, no one can unbirth you from it. In other words, you can't lose your salvation. You cannot be unborn. And sadly, there's this terrible, erroneous doctrine, and you can lose your salvation. How could Jesus save your soul and die for you and, and birth you into his kingdom, and somehow you unbirth yourself out of it? Well, when we're born again, God becomes our father. And we now have the ability, or the spiritual DNA, if you will, to love the brethren to the max, to love them to the limit. Well, then, well, Peter then tells them how they were born again. He says, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Uh, so the vehicle, the means by which men are regenerated is the word of God. Now, corruptible seed means man's seed, which is how men are born into this world. Uh, and it's, it's corruptible seed, meaning it'll perish. Men will perish. We will all physically die, right? We're only here for a short time, right? In the end, physical birth ends up in physical death. That's just how it works, and we all know that. But when we've been born again, we've been born again by an incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. Jesus said in the parable of the sower and the seeds in Luke 18, in Luke 8, rather, he said, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So by corruptible seed, we become children of men, but by incorruptible seed, or the word of God, we become children of God. Listen to what James said about this in James 1.18. He said, of his own will, there it goes again, God is the one who's doing this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, through the word. So the word of God is alive, and it's like no other book known to man. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus said of the, the word being alive in John 6.63, he said, It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. They are life. So the word of God is life-giving and it lasts forever. And to prove, to prove the incorruptibility of the word of God, Peter quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8 and verse 24, where he says, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. So whether grass or flower, common or beautiful, all men will perish. All men will perish, but the word of God will not. The beautiful, the successful, the intellectual, the famous, the flowers, if you will, will perish. Just as the ordinary Joes of this life, which would probably be all of us here, we will perish as well. So the prince and the pauper lay side by side in the grave, is what he's saying. But the word of God, it lasts forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So the word of God is lasting and it has power, power to save any soul when attended by the Holy Spirit. Story goes of a man sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and he finally offers the unbeliever a New Testament. And the unbeliever says, if you give it to me, I'm just gonna roll the pages up and use them, as, use them to make cigarettes and smoke them. So the believer says, all right, just promise me one thing. Promise me you'll read them before you smoke them. And the unbeliever says, oh, okay. 
Well, fade in, fade out, years go by, and they run into each other again. And this time, the unbeliever is now a saved man. And he tells the man who gave him the Bible actually how God saved them. He says, listen, I kept my promise when you gave me that New Testament. I read the pages of the Bible you gave me before I smoked them. He said, I smoked Matthew, I smoked Mark, I smoked Luke, and by the time I got to John, God saved me. So the word of God is powerful, and it is timeless. One man said, the word contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Another man said this, read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. Well, Peter ends this section by saying, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, since through the gospel you are now in God's family and live by faith, you are called to sincerely and fervently love one another with a pure heart. Well, let me close by leaving you with three final thoughts. Three final thoughts. And the first final thought is this. It is time for the church to show the world what genuine love looks like. It's time for the church to show the world what genuine love looks like. Listen, the world is spiraling out of control. There is great, great hate in this world where men despise anyone who isn't like them or disagrees with them or doesn't vote like they vote, right? To them, love is partisan or feeling-driven uh, and, 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 uh, and, and not seen or experienced uh, in, in their day-to-day life. Uh, and their view of it is swayed by the media and the voices that they hear and that they read and in, in an unstable culture. And, and they need to see what love really looks like. And the only place they're going to see what it really looks like, the only place they're going to see love in action, is why you, how you love one another, in this place and outside of this place. They need to see it in action. Not a divided church over racial issues, not a divided church over political issues or social justice issues, but a, the church militant fighting to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So let's show them the love of Christ by truly loving one another and loving each other to the limit. My second final thought is this, that Jesus is our great example of fervent love. Remember we said fervent love is stretching your love to its limits. Well, Jesus stretched himself to the limits in his love for us. And he showed it by allowing his arms to be stretched out on an old rugged cross and then allowing, I believe, up to nine-inch spikes being driven through his wrists so that he could hang on a cross for six hours as his life was slipping away from him and as he was racked in pain, gasping for every single breath of air until there was no more. And on top of that, and more importantly, his purpose for being on the cross, he was suffering the penalty of our sins. He was bearing God's punishment for them. A holy God was pouring out holy wrath on his son because his son was carrying our sins. So he stretched himself to the limit for you so your sin debt could be wiped away and you could be forever forgiven. Thus God's justice has passed over you because it was swallowed up by Jesus for you. And since Christ did that for you and for me, ought we not to stretch ourselves to the limit to love his people? Does that not make sense? Now my last thought. There are only really two things necessary if there is going to be going to be love among the saints at RGF. One is you have to be born again by the word, and the second is your souls have to be purified by obedience to the truth. In other words, you have to be genuinely regenerated, saved by grace 
through faith believers. You need to be the real deal because this kind of love, for this kind of love to be real, you need real Christians. You need real Christians. Not professing Christians who do not possess the spirit of God. Right? Not people who come to church and give a little here and serve a little there, but have no passion for God's glory or for holy living. Right? That's not going to cut it. And if, if you're truly not born again this day, if you're truly not in the kingdom this day, right? if your soul has never been purified by obeying the gospel, you need to know that God knows that. That God knows that. And coming to church doesn't change that for you. God knows that. And you can fool the elders of the church and you can fool the saints, but you cannot fool the king of the saints. And I would urge you to hear the gospel today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10,000th time. Hear it and embrace it and believe it and, and surrender to it and cry out to God to help you to follow it. I would urge you to repent of your sins today and turn to Christ today and accept him as your Lord and Savior today. And if you do, you will experience his unchanging, incomprehensible love for you and your love for all the saints and their love for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're in awe that you would love rebels and fist shakers and people who hate your word and hate you, who don't want you to run their life. And Lord, that was every single believer in this room, and that is right now every single unbeliever in this room. But we thank you for loving the saints who you have saved so far. We thank you, Father, for putting the Spirit of God in us, showing us you, that we can know you and know your Son, and that is indeed eternal life. We thank you for loving us, Lord, to the limit and we pray that we would love each other that way, Lord. Forgive us for not loving each other that way, if that is the case. Forgive us for not sincerely and fervently and purely loving each other. Lord, grow us in that. Let us think more of others than ourselves, Lord. Let the burden of the saints be our burden as well. Help us to go out of our way for each other. Lord, may it be, Father, that we would love them so much, Lord, that we would prefer them above ourselves. And Lord, for the unsaved sitting here today, Lord, you know their hearts. Lord, you know what they need so desperately. Show it to them. Place it on their heart, Lord, that they're a rebel running far from God. Uh, and Lord, they can only run so long and so far until either A, you save them, or B, they end up in eternal damnation. And so we pray you'd save their souls. We pray you'd draw them to Christ. We pray you'd empty them of their selves and show them their great need and the tremendous love of Christ. And even now, Lord, if they repent and believe, Christ would save them. He'd save them to the uttermost. So, Lord, would you have mercy on their souls, we pray in his name. Amen.